Your ears do not deceive you. You have just entered the Cryptid Creator Corner brought to you by your friends at Comic Book Yeti. So without further ado, let's get on to the interview. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Cryptid Creator Corner podcast. I'm Byron O'Neill, your host for today's chat, coming to you from the North Carolina Piedmont, where temperatures are, are finally starting to resemble the actual season. We had quite the warm spell there. I'm delighted because I get to talk with a fellow native Tennessean who also happens to be an Eisner, Ringo, International Horror Guild, and National Cartoonist Society winner, Eric Powell. I'm As a huge fan of Hillbilly, one of my all-time favorite comics, I've wanted to have Eric on the show for quite some time. We'll be focus on, focusing on his new, unique, Victorian-inspired ghost story and thought, that's a mouthful, project <laughs> coming out this holiday season from Dark Horse Comics on his Albatross imprint, Four Gathered on Christmas Eve. Eric, thanks for joining me on the show today. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah. When I first saw the concept, I immediately went to Mary Shelley's Frankenstein in my head, or or kind of rather the, the origin of her writing it anyway, with a few friends who got together in Geneva in the mm-hmm. 1816, you know, who came up competition to see who could write the best horror story. Mm-hmm. Um, the rest there is history. So what made you want to kind of tackle a comics anthology full of Victorian era ghost stories. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I always loved the idea that uh, it used to be a tradition to sit around and tell ghost stories on Christmas Eve. And I was kind of bummed out that that didn't exist anymore. Um, there's that uh, uh, movie, uh, I think from like 1981 uh, ghost story based okay, on yeah. a Peter Straub book. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a society of, uh, these old men called the Chowder Society, and they sit around and tell each other's ghost ghost stories. I was rewatching uh, the movie, and I started thinking to myself how it, uh, I started being really envious of these guys because they were they had that you know little group that they you know got around and had a few drinks and sat by a fire and told ghost stories. Sure, um, that's the only thing I'm envious of them about from that story, but. Um, yeah, and uh, that was really the the where the idea came from. Okay. Um, uh, and I thought uh, for I had been thinking for a while of doing something uh, a Victorian ghost story uh, collection or something. Um. Uh, but instead of doing it all by myself, I thought I should get other creators in, and then it would kind of really have that vibe of people gathering to tell ghost stories. And then I took it a step further and actually created uh, kind of avatars for us uh, that are Victorian versions of ourselves actually sitting around a fire on Christmas Eve and telling ghost stories. So as a student of mythology myself, I mean, I literally have a degree in it. I love digging into the background um, of this tradition, you know, telling these types of stories during the holidays. The tradition was really fascinating, um, originated with kind of that oral history route, you know, with the Industrial mm-hmm. Revolution, making books cheaper, more accessible to everybody. So it became this really interesting mechanism to look at class dynamics through that mm-hmm. kind of lens of a horror story while keeping a, a rural tradition alive. So did you always intend to kind of maintain something more traditional because it's it's like really in fashion now for steampunk to be associated yeah. with anything victorian right I, and i yeah. guess there's there's a bit of a flavor of that maybe without giving too much away in one of yeah. the stories anyway but yeah yeah the the story that uh, james heron illustrates um i wanted the stories to 
have different vibes. And luckily with the creators that uh, joined me on this book, that wasn't a problem because everyone brings their own, you know, uh, flavor to the thing. Um, uh, with James's, I was, I was just thinking about, you know, his, his art. I actually wrote his story. Uh, uh, it was his art that kind of inspired it. And, um, I, th I thought that, uh, uh, also astronomy at the time at the mm -hmm. Victorian age. And, you know, the, the, uh, they actually thought that there was a, another planet, uh, I guess around Mercury called uh, Vulcan, mm -hmm. which was a thing for a while because Mercury had a weird orbit. And I thought that would be fun to kind of like incorporate into this because it doesn't seem, you know, it'd be kind of a twist, you know. Right. Um, so uh, a ghost uh, ship in space was kind of a, you know, a Victorian ghost ship in space where that went. Well, you kind of mentioned you've enlisted some of the some really big heavy hitters um, who are contributing to the project. So how did how did you convince Mike and Becky and, and James to kind of jump on board with this? Well, <laughs> I did the smart thing and I convinced Mike first. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, that, that makes sense. And it didn't, it didn't take much convincing because, you know, I, I said, Hey, I'm going to do a book, uh, of, uh, Victorian ghost stories. And he's like, okay. Because I mean, that's right up his alley. Um, right. And then, you know, I just went to Becky and James and said, I'm doing this book with Mike. Do you want in? And they, you know, uh, I, I think Mike was the draw. <laughs> I'll be a little humble, but you know, obviously I think Mike was the draw, you know, there. He's always an easy draw for, for yeah. anything, right? You, you yeah. put his name on it and and people are going to at least pay attention. So, mm. I mean, and you, you mentioned there's, there's a kind of a twist that I haven't seen for a comics anthology and that you've kind of, you put the creators in it, in the story as a part of the story. And they kind of, there's a, there's a, their own kind of weaving narrative. I mean, I've seen it before where it's like a, a comic book shop and you have the people and then you cut to an anthology, you know, but this, yeah. this I felt was a standalone story. Mm -hmm. So did you, when you, when you, did you enlist the creators and then like, okay, now I'm going to infuse this element or, you know, you kind of mentioned that you always wanted to have the sort of avatar thing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I kind of pitched the idea to the other creators and then wrote a script and sent it to them. And they were like, great. And, uh, I showed, you know, them character sketches, um, and kind of warned them that I was making us all terrible people. Okay. <laughs> and, and drawing us a little crazy, uh, which I had to make sure, uh, that I drew myself kind of the most, uh, unflattering of the group so there wouldn't be any <laughs> i didn't want there to be any hard feelings you know like uh, if they looked at it and was like why did you draw me like that so uh i drew myself the most unflattering but yeah i wanted it to i didn't want it to be like um you know i i love the horror host concept you know the uh you know uncle creepy and cousin eerie, you know, yeah, and everything like that. Or all that, but I didn't want this to feel that way. I did want it to be, feel like part of the story. And, uh, as Becky described it, these are like our D and D characters. Okay. <laughs> that makes sense. You know? And, uh, so I, I did want it to, you know, 
be its own thing and and kind of stand alone as as a as just another story in the the book okay well saying becky kind of viewed it through that lens of a DD character makes so much more sense to me now because i was going to ask you know why is she the only one that gets familiar of sorts yeah <laughs> yeah oh well i i was going to tell you a story but i think it would give uh too give much away ending, yeah give the ending away but yeah no worries yeah well, you know, Christmas, um, kind of centering it around that and the holidays in, in, in many ways has about as many boogie men as Halloween does. Right. Mm-hmm. So we have the Christmas Carol tradition to, to Krampus there, you know, there's kind of no shortage of dope shit to play with. So, yeah. you know, kind of in, in fact, considering your love of drawing monsters, I'm, I'm sort of surprised Krampus didn't show up in there. Maybe that's a <laughs> spoiler, but you know, um, no, I, a funny story about Krampus, and you can find this, I'm sure, online. I think we actually made a Christmas tin. Uh, my partner is a chocolatier, and I think we did a, a, a goon uh, Christmas tin that she sold one year with chocolate in it. But um, I had gotten this book called The Devil in Design uh, years and years and years ago. And this was before the Krampus thing was really you know, happening before it was in popular right. culture. Yeah. Um, but it's a book of postcards, the old postcards that, you know, I had, were all Krampus. Um, and I was like, oh, this is perfect. I'm going to do a goon story with this character and this will be great. And then I could never get the timing right to get it onto my schedule where uh, it would come out at Christmas. So, it's my own fault that this didn't happen because of my scheduling problems. But, um, I, I was going to do a goon, uh, Krampus book, but, um, it started becoming too popular. And then I was like, well, I'll just be another guy jumping on the bandwagon now. Uh, but I've always been kind of bummed that I, I had an opportunity to be like the first guy to do it <laughs> and, and it didn't happen. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, also, I don't think this this that this particular book it would fit too well in there, just because it's not in that kind of uh, it. It wasn't part of the Victorian kind of folklore of Christmas, the British right. folklore of Christmas. It's it's sure. uh, you know, Germanic. Bavarian, yeah, Germanic. Yeah, yeah. I mean, before kind of seeing this, I, I got to admit some ignorance on the whole Victorian Christmas ghost story, you know, telling tradition, you know, I did order the, the Valancourt Christmas ghost stories book because, you know, mm-hmm. apparently it is indeed a thing. And now yeah. I, I want to read more <laughs> about it. Right. There, there's a bit of a, a penny dreadful feel to it mm-hmm. a little bit, you know, so it, was there something specific that kind of inspired your own story, the gift of major Courtenay? Am I pronouncing yeah. that correct? Courtney. Okay. Yeah. Um, that story, I, 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 you know, like, as we were saying, this, the stories all have the, a definite feel to them and ever, all the creators brought that in with my story. Um, I wanted it to be, uh, I wanted it to, to kind of like hit hard on the kind of Victorian ghost story in literature, not like oral tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was definitely trying to like channel MR James, who's a big, uh, Victorian ghost story writer. Uh, mm-hmm. um, so I, I was trying to do something that was a little bit more traditional to um, that era. 
than okay. maybe uh, the other creators were. Yeah, I mean, Becky's story, which I absolutely love, mm-hmm. um, she posted an image, I think, uh, on her socials, sort of close to the beginning of the year, somewhere around there. I screenshotted it and used it for some coloring practice, right? And mm. at the time, I had no idea where it was from or where it would show up. <laughs> so I was delighted to finally see it in there. You know, did did everyone just run with, you know, sort of their own concept, you know, and then yeah. come back? I told them to do whatever they wanted. And uh, this is what happened, you know. And and Becky's is really interesting because she um, she made kind of a poem out of it, mm-hmm. um, which is really great. And, uh, you know, with Mike's story, I mean, it's pure Mignola, you know, right? Yep. Uh, a lot of, uh, you know, atmosphere and everything. Yeah. But with all the stories, I really enjoyed kind of the main narrative staying pretty much monochrome. I mean, it had like a, a sepia washing to it, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it's, it's really a visual space that I could stay in for a long time. It's got a really nice pocket. You know, how did you kind of piece it all together from everyone from a visual standpoint? Because they're they're all very unique takes, and and, and I've always found it fascinating when the anthology formatting, you know, not to make those transitions jarring. You know, mm-hmm. it, it's a bit of a challenge. So, well, my initial uh, concept, and this is what I kind of pitched to everyone, is I wanted the book to be in black and white. Okay. Um, so my story is still in black and white, but all the other ones are in color. And we made the the linking segments. Uh, I did a sepia tone wash on it to set it apart. Um, uh, but when when Mike was finished with his story, he he asked me if I if I minded if he got it colored because he he felt it just um, would come to you know visually come together better that way. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> at first I was a little disappointed, but I, I was like, you know what, you know, if that's the way that it'll look better then yeah. Um, so he got Dave Stewart to color it. And then, so I told Becky and James, I said, Mike's story is going to be in color. So if you want yours in color, you know, you can do black and white or color. Cause mine's still going to be in black and white. And, uh, they both chose color. <laughs> so, um, but I think it works really well. It it doesn't. Uh, I don't think it's it's distracting. I feel like it does have a good flow. I think the little bit of sepia in the linking segments, you know, makes it a little less jarring when you go to a full color image. Mm-hmm. Yep, I can understand that. Yeah. Yeah. So did and Dave colored all of the sto- the other stories. Yeah. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which yeah. Was great. You know. Yeah. I mean, at least you have somebody stylistically. I mean, well, for Mike's story, mm-hmm. I mean. It, it would read like a Hellboy, right? Like yeah. in, in terms of 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 the color and and every, everything you would come to expect, I guess. Mm-hmm. You know, so so it felt very on pocket there. So w- with your own work, did you do you work like on on watercolor paper? Is that how you start? You know, because there there's a grain to it that that feels very very watercolor yeah. paper paper to me. So yes, uh, actually, uh, I switched over to watercolor paper on this project, and I had a bit of a before I had done that, I had a little bit of a disaster. Um, I, I had a batch of paper and I had already, my, my process is I, I, I pencil everything digitally now because, uh, it just, it's so much faster and allows you for correction. So then I'll print a blue line on a piece of Bristol and ink it and do my washes and everything. 
So I had penciled everything and printed out uh, all of my blue lines and went through and inked and I, with the intention of like, okay, I'm going to go through this story and ink everything. And I'm going to come back and do really, um, cause that has a very specific style in mind that I wanted to do. Uh, and thought, well, I'm going to go straight through and ink it the way in this kind of like very scratchy style. And then I'll come through and do really detailed washes. This is for the linking segment. Well, I got a bad batch of paper. <laughs> and when I started, I went through and inked everything. And then when I started putting down the washes, it just turned to mud. Oh, no. And it, I've never had a batch of paper do that poorly for me before. Um, so. I powered through and did what I could. And then I had to go back and do a lot of patch panels and things like that. Yeah. Um, I don't feel like the linking segment story, the illustrations are quite as good as my, my segment story because of that. It, it okay. feels a little rushed. It feels a little, you know, off. I mean, there are good segments in it, but as a whole, I don't feel like it stands up as well, but um, yeah. So that happened. Um, but yeah, after that, I, I was not about to use that paper again. So, uh, I just, I went to watercolor paper rather than Bristol. And so there's a little bit more texture in the, the segment story, uh, okay. because it was on watercolor paper. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I love working with the, those heavy contoured papers cause it's so mm -hmm. tactile, right. You know, right. I'm coming from more of a, a fine art photographic angle with it, but you mm -hmm. know, Nothing to me beats that like contoured rag cotton paper because it, yeah, yeah, it's amazing. It took me a while to to realize that my artwork looked better on paper that had some tooth to it. I, I started out like using really slick paper, and then um, I don't. I was experimenting, you know, and buying different types of paper, and just started like laying down some pencil, and was like, this has so much more character than the smooth stuff. So I completely switched to, to a tooth, you know, more of a grain to it. Yeah. Yeah. D did you, may I ask what, what paper you, you ended up using for that? I'm, it's just me being curious. It's just a, um, uh, Strathmore 500 watercolor okay. paper. Yeah. 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 Do you think that's something you'll, you want to explore more now that you've kind of, you know, gotten into it and. Yeah, it, it, uh, after using it, I was really kicking myself that I hadn't been using it for a while. I don't know. For some, there's <laughs> there's a thing, I guess, you know, I, I'm sure I'm not the only one, an artist. You know, you get kind of into a, well, this is what it's done on. Right. And, you know, usually I'm not that way. I'm I'm kind of, I'm experimental and I'm trying different things and everything. But, you know, it was just like, oh, no, you work on Bristol. You don't work on watercolor paper, even though I'm doing a lot of washes. Uh and after I did that story, um, due to the paper fiasco, I'm kind of kicking myself that I didn't just say, why am I not using watercolor paper? I'm looking forward to more watercolor work. I really, really yeah. enjoyed it. I got to say, Thanks. I mean, I've, I've been a fan of your work for a long time and, and this really popped to me. Oh, um, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I really enjoyed it. Well, this is your first new kind of Albatross imprint book with Dark Horse. Mm -hmm. So was it mainly an issue of timing that kind of led you to do this over, like focusing on some of your mo more IP stuff like The Goon or Hillbilly? Or... Yeah, we, um, 
a lot of life happened in the, after you know the switch over too. So it got I got kind of a slow start. Um, you know, we we moved and and everything and had some family uh, issues going on. Um, so this the Christmas book was actually a project that was going. It was already in the process of happening at Albatross before we made the switch over. So it got canceled. Um, and, uh, so I could move it over to dark horse. Okay. Um, because I did, it didn't make any sense to go through the long process of releasing a book market kind of book and then canceling it and re-releasing it later at dark horse. So I said, we'll just cancel it. And, you know, this will be a process, uh, project that we, you know, move over. And because it was already in the process of being done, it became our our first book. Okay. It seems like a good spot to take a quick break. Hey, y'all. Jimmy recently scored me a signed, personalized copy of Hallow's Eve from Erica Schultz after our interview. You've probably had this problem, too. I got this great book. Now, how did I display this thing? Well, I discovered this great product from Crafty Comics that lets you showcase your treasured comics and they even have options for already slab books too. I got their flex frame, which is amazing as you can customize the backing and it even has interchangeable watercolors to coordinate with your space. I opted for neutral gray to match the blue in my room. You can hang portrait or landscape and it comes with a template to make it easy to ensure that you get it exactly where you want it. To my surprise, my wife, who tolerates my comic stuff, was actually impressed with the overall quality and look. Win! So if you're looking for the perfect solution to showcase your own collection, visit craftycomics.com online. That's crafty with an I. Use the discount code YETI5 and get 5% off your order. All right, let's get back to the show. With that switch, I'm imagining in some ways there's kind of a attention release kind of being back under the umbrella of a major comics publisher at least in terms of like your creative output potential right because it's yeah. a tough road as a creator you know managing all these direct market aspects of publishing yeah i think i kind of went through a a burnout period once we made the agreement with dark horse because i had been going non-stop for six years and that that because as a as a publisher it was like you know well we have to have something in the catalog every month or otherwise we're not really active as a publisher. Right. Um, so I'm, you know, working on projects all the time and then, you know, running the publishing company. Yeah. And, you know, it, uh, we were handling a lot of everything ourselves. So, um, I don't think I realized how burnout I was getting until I actually had a moment to stop and catch my breath. And then it was hard for me to get going again. It was just like, you know, that kind of like stress of sitting down and, and doing something. Yeah. You know, uh, but, uh, yeah, I, it, I also, on the, the opposite end of that, I've been kind of stressing out the fact that we haven't had anything out yet because we had this, you know, transition period. And uh, I'm very excited, you know, and Dark Horse had a much longer or has a much longer lead in time than as a small publisher, Albatross did. Mm -hmm. You know, if I wanted to do a book, I could solicit it and have it on the stands in three to four months. You sure. Know? Mm -hmm. um, 
with Dark Horse, you know, of course, the you know, with their distribution and everything, it's a much lengthier process. So, you know, we've we've been working on projects, but you know, we don't haven't had anything coming out. So I'm I'm very excited that this, you know, book is coming and that uh, you know, it's it's now the you know, the start. Yeah. You know, this book is going to be out there, then the next book, and then this and that, you know. And so we're we're actually, you know, starting to roll. Awesome. Well, is the plan to kind of dive back into the characters in like the Albatross exploding funny books with Dark Horse? Maybe maybe with the exception of the death toilet. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's what bummed me out because I, you know, I I I had like um for those listening who don't know, in we had an anthology called Albatross Exploding Funny Books, but again, we got one issue out and then decided to move to Dark Horse, so that got scrapped. Um, but in it, I had like a one-page kind of uh, trailer for a slasher movie called The Terror Toilet. Yep. And I had uh, ideas for like seven sequels. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so... Um, I think those will pop up in the goon or something because uh, I find them funny. Yeah. You know, it's literal toilet humor. So hundred oh, <laughs> percent. I I thought it was hilarious. It was not what I expected. I was like, all right, cool. All right. I, I wanted more though. Like I, it, like it was almost a, it put me back in like a, a Scooby-Doo mindset almost where, yeah, I, yeah, yeah, it was funny. Um, well, I kind of started this uh, quick hits section. If you'll indulge me, I'm done. Like sure. I'm giving you five random questions, kind of kind of designed to get to know you a little better. Um, I'll answer them too. Do my best not to be too terribly long winded. Um, as it as it seems in pocket, you know, let's do at least a few of those as, as a holiday theme, kind of a, that that seems appropriate. So, what's okay. your favorite holiday season food? Oh, oh, that's hard. I love the food. <laughs> Um, I recently learned how to pretty much, and this has taken years, um, replicate my mom's dressing. Okay. Which has, you know, uh, has been hard to do. Uh, this last year I nailed it. I was so proud of myself. So I've got it figured out. I think that's, that's actually the thing that I look forward when I think about the holidays and eating, I think about my mom's dressing. Okay. Um, and the fact that I can make it myself now, that's a good thing. So on the West coast, I can still have my mom's dressing. Well, bless your mom because like my, yeah. it's not my best it's my worst, right. Was, was dressing growing up. And we had, mm-hmm. we had, um, my grandma and then the, the three aunts, her sisters uh-huh. and the dressing, they were like hockey pucks. Like, Oh no, that's not yeah, good. <laughs> they, they, and some of them had onions and some of them didn't have onions. And it was yeah. just like, Byron, don't touch this. This is your aunt Kathy's dressing, right? They were all bad. They were oh. all bad. So, <laughs> Sorry to so, hear that. <laughs> so, so bless your mom for, for a, de- I, yeah, yeah. a decent, a decent Christmas dressing. That, that's amazing. Um, so I went worst as opposed to best, but you know, did your family have any weird traditions around the holidays? Not really. We were pretty standard. You know, it was like, uh, I, unless this is weird to people. I mean, we opened one gift on Christmas Eve and okay. that's pretty standard, right? I think so. That That's my weird because we opened all the gifts. On all Christmas of them. Eve. Yeah. Yeah. I knew there was some, uh, I, and is that, are you Catholic by the way? I'm not. No not Catholic. Oh, no. I, 
I don't know if that was a Catholic thing or something. Like I, I could be completely wrong. I don't know why I'm thinking that, but for some reason, I thought there was uh, maybe a, a thing where at midnight on Christmas Eve, people open the presents. Yeah, it was. I always thought it was normal. I, it, it, it's yeah. just a Tennessee thing, right? I mean, yeah. and um, yeah, then to come to find out, everybody that I know is like, "What? Well, that is weird that you guys open all these gifts." <laughs> no, I've heard that. I, it's not. Uh, I don't think that's completely weird. I've heard of that. Okay. Um, but we, yeah, we just opened one. Um, other than that, I can't really think of any. No, not really. All right. Well, looking back on your childhood, what was your favorite Christmas gift? Oh, my. I'll, I'll give you two. One's not from my childhood. Oh. Um, uh, <laughs> I think this is this is funny, but uh, uh, a BB gun. OK, I think like Ralphie and Christmas story. There you I, go. I got a BB gun one year. I think that was like I still look on that. Oh, maybe not. Um, I got Castle Grayskull when I was uh, I can't remember what age I was, but uh, that one was pretty great, too. Okay. Um, one of my best Christmas gifts, though, that I, I got um, maybe about six years ago, my partner Andrea, um, that my my grandparents were country music music musicians. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, my grandfather went on to pursue it a little bit more than my grandmother did, um, and I didn't really have any recordings of my grandmother. But uh, when they were starting out, my granddad's very first recording that had my grandmother on it singing a duet with him uh, uh, was, is a very rare record. And uh, um, I don't know what the, what the difference is. The old records that, you know, like the wax records now, and then the, the old ones were like on a, I don't know. I'm not a record expert, but like a or something, you know, they're, it's really heavy. Um, Super rare record. Somehow. Uh, my partner Andrea tracked that record down. Wow! And uh, it was uh, that was amazing. It's such a, a an amazing gift. That is so cool. Yeah, I watched the the video you posted about your grandpa working with Roy Acuff and doing the the wall yeah. cannonball whistle. Yeah, 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 yeah. So my grandfather um, used to sing in the church choir. I can't carry awesome. him for shit. Right? <laughs> he he was pretty damn good. And yeah. he used to sing that song all the time. So it's so really like, a, yeah, yeah. hundred oh, nice. percent. So it's a Tennessee like, thing. I, I know. Like my family <laughs> did the pilgrimage to the Grand Ole Opry, right? All, yeah. all the things. Yeah. So your, your granddad was a harmonica player. Is that right? He was a harmonica player. He was, he played a little bit of everything, but um, <clears throat> when he went from being a solo performer, he, he joined uh, Roy Acuff's band as the harmonica player. So he would play harmonica, and when they would do the Wabash Cannonball, he was the one who did the train whistle live. Yeah. yeah, I will when I when I do the the show notes for this, I will definitely post a, a link to that because that, <laughs> that, that video is definitely worth watching. Yeah. It was really cool. I was like, wow, I assumed they had recorded that, that it was a train whistle, right? Not some, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. he could he could do it live. That's really cool. Um, if you could draw one monster that you haven't yet drawn before, at least in a public forum, what would it be and why? Uh, I would really, and I've said this before, um, I would really like to do the, the demon, uh, DCs, the the Jack Kirby. I would like to take it back to the Jack Kirby version of the character though. You know, with the big monster punching book. Um, I'm sure that'll never happen. 
I wish it would. That would be amazing. <laughs> I wish it would too. Uh, that would, I feel, I don't know. I'm, I'm very busy with my own stuff, but, um, if the stars ever aligned, that would be something that it would be hard for me to say no to. Yeah. Well, hopefully the, the stars align and you get a chance because I'm a yeah. huge fan of that, that character. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, that'd be great. Well, for me, um, and people who listen to the podcast all the time will be like, God, he's doing it again. So, um, the Uctena, um, which is like the winged serpent. So very mm-hmm. specific. There's a family relationship to this, but the, the Southeastern ceremonial complex, I can't draw for shit, first of all. <laughs> um, so if I could do it, I would make it out of stained glass because I think that would oh, be cool. Cool. not that I can do stained glass, but it just, Hey, it's cool. Yeah. I think stained glass is amazing. Um, so who's your single biggest comics influence? Um, I, I think I have three. Okay. Um, Will Eisner, Jack Davis, and Bernie Wrightson. I think those are the three, and I can't... I don't know if I can distinguish any one of them standing out more than the the other. Okay. Um, and, the, I mean, in, in specific areas, you know, where it's... Um, you know, things definitely where it'd be like... You know storytelling and everything you know things like that and structure it's like well that's definitely eisner you know and then it's like cartooning you know that's definitely jack davis you know rendering and you know just the you know uh vibe of the artwork i think it's bernie so how did how did you get into comics like what's your origin story there uh I, I mean, like everybody, I, I think I was, you know, a kid and, you know, you would go to the grocery store and yep. grab a Marvel comic off of the rack. You know, yep. I wasn't really exposed to anything else other than pretty much Marvel or DC um, because, you know, where I grew up, there wasn't really a comic shop. Uh, so it was whatever was on the stand at the grocery store or something. Um but then, you know, as I got older, uh, you know, I, I didn't really read comics. Um, and I kind of rediscovered them in high school through a friend. Uh, and, you know, from then on, it was, that's all I ever thought about, you know, was comics. Okay. I, uh, uh, because I had been, I had always, I had drawn, been drawing my entire life. Um, that was a constant. And, uh, when I got kind of junior high age, um, I started having these notebooks where I would do a drawing and then kind of write a story to go along with it, you know? Okay. Yeah. And then as I started rediscovering comics, um, it kind of dawned on me. Oh, it's like, well, this is what you're doing. You're, you're drawing and you're writing stories. So this is what you should do for a living, you know? having no idea how they were made or anything like that. So I kind of, you know, became obsessed with them and just, that's all I wanted to do. Is there a difference in your mind with that? The designation, cause I've always been fascinated by this. Cause I've, I've talked to people, got friends who consider themselves a cartoonist and I mm-hmm. have other people who are firmly in the, I'm a comics artist. I mean, does it, does it matter? I mean, what, I describe myself as a cartoonist because I write and draw. 
Okay. Um, I think that's the distinction. If you're okay. writing and drawing it, you're a cartoonist. And if you are just drawing from someone else's script, you're a comic book artist. Okay. That's the way I would label it anyway. Okay. Yeah. So there's people listening right now. They're smacking their foreheads being like, why did he ask such a dumb question? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it's, that's just, that's just the way I label it. I don't know how okay. other people label it. So, well, I got to get my hillbilly question in. Um, okay. So was any of this influenced in any way by Manly Wade Wellman's Silver John novel? Uh, I can't say that it, it wasn't, but it's not the, it's not where the concept came from. It came okay. more from Conan believe okay. it or not, because, uh, you know, just the, it seemed like all of the, you know, Tolkien and everything, it's all based in like the British version of, uh, you know, a, a forgotten era, you know? Mm-hmm. And, I thought, well, it would be fun to do a sword and sorcery thing, but put it, you know, kind of where I'm from, you know, not that I'm from the hills. I'm not that, you know, (laughs) my family was. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm not from the hills. We're from, you know, uh, the Nashville area. So uh, a little, you know, a little far from the mountains, but, you know, it's, it's still part of Tennessee, you know, and um, so, yeah, that's where the the initial idea came from. Um, but yeah, I was aware of of the uh, Hillbilly John. It didn't really um, kind of come to me until later that that was like, oh yeah, that's kind of you know. <laughs> yep. So it wasn't a direct uh, you know inspiration. Maybe it was a subconscious you know inspiration, but yeah. It's probably just me trying to connect the two since I have a love for both. So, yeah. It's just, but that's that. more of a modern, as I said, my, my idea was to do like a kind of Conan, like beyond time kind of old, you know, thing. And, um, the manly made Wade uh, Wellman, um, stories are kind of sort of modernish. Yeah, for sure. I mean, they're, yeah. you know, they're, the the era is a bygone era, but I mean, like there are cars, right? Yeah. Like in yeah. It, you know, so yeah. yeah. That explains a lot actually, you know, with the cleaver. Um, yeah. And Conan sword. Okay. Now. Right. It's very, it's very, and, and, you know, it's very Arthurian. And even to the fact that there is a kind of composite of, uh, you know, the wizard in there, there's the Merlin, his, his, uh, James Stone Turner is kind of the Merlin of the story, you know? Yeah. Well, from me, thank you so much for at least bringing some of these, <laughs> these stories that I was exposed to as a kid and like that were terrifying Yeah. Um, and putting those stories on a page because, you know, my family, it's a couple generations back, but mm-hmm. some of those legends were, were like very real. Now, whether they yeah. believe them or whether they just got a kick out of telling a little kid the stories. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when was it, the first time that you heard the Taylor Poe? Oh story? my God. I was <laughs> Cause, second, second grade. Yeah. Second grade. Yeah. And we had, I'm not kidding. So we had, we got exposed to that. Actually I got exposed to that at, um, at school. So mm-hmm. there was a, a library book that the librarian read and then came home told my family about it. And they're like, Oh yeah, we have all these stories. So then I got inundated with the stories. Right. So my head is spinning, you know, as this, this young kid. And of course there's a pine tree that sits right outside my window growing up as a kid. 
and it would scratch the window periodically, oh, right? <laughs> the worst as a kid. Yes. <laughs> I knew logically that was the wind, but yeah. no, 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 no. My brain said Haley Poe all the time. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, is there anything else coming down the pipe? You know, anything you can talk about, about the, the goon animated movie on Netflix yet or. No, we're still, you know, churning away at that thing. We've, uh, we've hit a lot of problems, you know, that's typical of Hollywood where, you know, we've got it set up here and then the executive either leaves or gets fired or whatever. And all their projects that they had lined up are canned, sure. you know? So that's yeah. happened to us a couple of times. Um, but Tim Miller is uh, very tenacious about this thing. He still loves it and he still wants to get it made. So we're, um, you know, still plugging away, trying to make it happen. And you've got another project that you're doing um, with your, your, you know, co-creator from the the Gein, not not specifically mm -hmm. on on Eddie, but something yeah. else, right? You're working on that. Yeah, I'm working on another uh, graphic novel with Harold Schechter right now. Okay, okay. Yeah. And that's. I thought I said something that still was it based on true crime again, or it's yes, okay, it, but it covers several crimes. Okay, so it's. Uh, I think this one's gonna kind of surprise people okay i think when we announce it everyone's gonna go oh so uh, i hope that's the reaction anyway <laughs> so we'll, we'll wait and see I, I mean judging the reaction on the other project i, I i'm sure it will be well received but oh, i hope so yeah all right well circling back to four gathered on christmas uh i i got the advanced copy of it i thought it was fantastic so everybody pick it up as i understand it, it's dropping right before christmas is that yeah. correct mm -hmm. okay and that's the hardback, right? Yes. That's that's the formatting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, Eric, thanks for hanging out with me today. It's it's always great to chat with someone whose work I've admired for a long time. So I appreciate it. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate being here. Yeah. Thank you. Well, this is Byron O'Neill on behalf of all of us at Comic Book Yeti, wishing you and yours a happy holiday season. See you next time. This is Byron O'Neill, one of your hosts of the Cryptid Creator Corner, brought to you by Comic Book Yeti. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of our podcast. Please rate, review, subscribe, all that good stuff. It lets us know how we're doing, and more importantly, how we can improve. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of the Cryptid Creator Corner, maybe you would enjoy our sister podcast, Into the Comics Cave. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Joey Galvez. I want to tell you guys a little bit about the Department of Metahuman Affairs. This one is a story about a team led by a retired sidekick, two felons, a failed actor from Broadway, and a reprogrammed cyborg. But their first mission is to stop the criminals who have robbed a bank, and they will have to set the world at ease. You're going to get 180 pages of entertainment action-packed awesomeness right here in the first six issues in a collected hardcover volume one all you got to do is head on over to kickstarter.com and type in the department of metahuman affairs or dma and check it out right now